Welcome to the Riverwood Chapel podcast. We're so excited you're here. Please check out our other content and video uploads at riverwoodchapel.org. Thank you. Well, good morning, Riverwood. Turn to the person next to you and answer this question. What were you doing at the age of 17? Go. What were you doing at 17? 17. Now, for many people in the room, I realize that you're like, 17 was a long time ago. For some people, they're like, I haven't gotten there yet. Is there anybody living 17 right now? Right now, you're in the room, you are 17. All right, we're glad, we are glad you are here. 17. I was looking at the number of songs that have been written about the age of 17 are numerous from Frank Sinatra to Avril Lavigne to Kid Rock, the Cars, uh, Stevie Nicks, The Edge of Seventeen. But this is the number one. Like, everyone knows this song, right? Let's hear it. You are the yeah, there it is. Yeah. And now for everybody in the room, you're completely confused. Like, what is going on here? Well, today we are going to examine a story from God's Word. And the origin of this story starts from someone who is 17. 17. And uh, we're going to then go from there to say, all right, what does this 17-year-old story have to do with me and my life? And that's where we're going to be. Because 17 seems to be that interesting age. I was asking people all week, like, what were you doing? And you either get answers like, I was being stupid. <laughs> or life was starting to become more complicated. And so we're going to have a conversation around the things that are a little bit more complicated today. Um, just a, a warning for all those who are here. We're going to get into very personal topics we're going to get into something that's going to pry into every single one of our lives. And I will tell you, last hour, someone came up to me afterwards and said this, if I knew you were going to talk about that, I would not have come to church today. This is, this is where we're going to be this morning, um, coming from God's word. And so Joseph, 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 we've been in this series, Walking by Faith. What does it mean to walk by faith? Um, we looked at all of the Old Testament characters, and down the timeline we go. Next week, we'll talk about Moses, but for this week, Joseph. Joseph, Joseph walked by faith. What is faith? Every week, we've been using this definition, that faith is the present daily living, right here, right now. I am making decisions. I am making choices for my life right now. Why am I making them? I'm making them based on some very strong anchors. And hopefully you have these anchors. That's what it means to walk by faith. The anchors of a confidence that God will fulfill his promises in the future. His word is secure. Where I am going ultimately has already been dealt with because of who Jesus Christ is. But then also 
the other anchor of the past. He's been faithful and faithful and faithful from generation to generation. And so right now, right here, I am making decisions for my life, walking by faith. All right, so we're going to be in the Joseph narrative. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, this is, this is what we hear uh, about Joseph. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> All right, once again, a synopsis at the very end of one of this, the patriarch, uh, one of his end moments. And basically what Joseph was saying is this. This is not my home. And even if I'm dead, take my bones and take them home to the land of Canaan, because Egypt is not my home. By faith, he was walking in that. But really, what is the deeper story of Joseph? That's where we're going to be this morning. How did he get to Egypt? What's, what's the real thing going on in his life? And so that's where we're going to now go from Hebrews. Now I'm going to go back into the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, and we're going to unpack some more of the narrative of Joseph. Where should we begin? Chapter 37, verse 1. This might be uh, some old Sunday school memories. You might hear some things. Here's how the story begins. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of jo Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billa and, and Zilpah, his father's wives. I don't know what you were doing at 17, but Joseph was a shepherd with his older brothers. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 3. Now Israel, remember this is Jacob, Israel renamed, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Joseph and his amazing colored coat. Now as the youngest brother, as you see what's in play here is there's jealousy, uh, there's, there's favoritism. It takes then an even deeper, darker turn. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. I call this the pinnacle knowledge 17 moment. You know, 17 year old, you're at the pinnacle of knowledge. Hey, brothers, I had a dream. You want to hear about it, right? Come on over. And in the dream, he's describing how they would bow down to him. All right, the next verses take it in even to a darker place. Verse 18, they, the brothers, saw him from afar, and before they came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. 
And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. All right, he's left in a hole. But then some of his brothers, as you read the story, have a better plan. They're like, maybe he's worth something alive. And so let's see if we can sell him. And that's exactly what they do. He is sold, and eventually he is taken to the land of Egypt. That's how he got there. All right, so this is the introduction of the 17-year-old who is now beginning to understand that life is more complicated in a broken world. And as you read, you can almost see the innocence of childhood disappearing as you read. All right, so what was life like in Egypt Now I'm skipping to chapter 39 as we continue. This is where we're going to park ourselves and ask some more questions. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and field. And so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. This is quite a turnaround from his brothers who were selling him into slavery. And as wild and manipulative as his father Jacob was, we looked at that last week, that Jacob was kind of like, ah, it was convenient to be on the side of Yahweh when it made sense for him. Joseph is remarkably different. And that's really what the author wants you to see, even in the text. The number of times the Lord is mentioned is pretty impressive. The Lord was with him. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. It mattered to Joseph to have this authentic relationship with Yahweh. And people noticed, and even Potiphar noticed. And it's interesting what he was in charge of, all of this, all of his house. But little did we know, life was going to become a little more complicated for Joseph. Let's skip down to verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. 
Temptation has come to Joseph, and let's just name it, sexual temptation. And it's complicated on lots of levels, one of them being this is Potiphar's wife, and she is now wooing this very handsome man, Joseph. He has a a double uh, qualification. He is handsome in form and appearance. There's only one other person in the Bible who is mentioned this way, and that would be his mother. And so he is stunning. And the not-so-subtle messaging from Potiphar's wife is this. Let's be together. Who will ever know? It'll be just the two of us. No one's going to get hurt by this. We'll be two consenting adults. Let's do this, Joseph. Come on. But Joseph's response to Potiphar's wife is incredible. Notice what he says in verse 8. Do you know what is in my charge? It's a Hebrew word for hand. Do you know what has been placed in my hand? And the answer is everything except one. Everything is in my control. Everything except one. What is that one? Well, you are someone else's wife. And so that is clearly something that is not in my charge, in my hand. And so Joseph is teaching us some real interesting uh, wisdom. And the first piece of this wisdom says this. This, if, if I engage in this, this would be a great wickedness. Great wickedness. Now, it might be two consenting adults. It might be okay. And all of these things. But Joseph sees above that and he says, that would be a lie. This would be a great wickedness to engage in something like this. All right, the second part of the wisdom is not just a a great wickedness, but he said, but this would also be a sin against God. Sin against God. What's the real root of this? He's saying this would be against God's intentions. It would be against his design, his design of what he wants to see happen in the area of sexuality, which is clearly given. Let's just pause here. The the definition is very clear. His design is very, very clear. Lots of space and words have been given in Genesis to describe What is his design? And his design in Genesis chapter 2 is for one man and one woman to be in a covenant relationship where they will, and he says it, they will leave their parents, they will hold fast to one another, and they will become one flesh. That is the design And every, I want you to hear this, every other permutation of that design is distortion and sin. Every other permutation of that is sin. Now let's just talk through some of the permutations. Polygamy was rampant in the Bible. 
That would be uh, multiple wives. Let's go back to the design. Oh, multiple, it's only one man, one woman, not multiple wives. That is a complete distortion when you see that in the scriptures. That is not God's design. Adultery uh, is distortion. Uh, a man and a woman and then another man or another woman and some combination of that. That is distortion. That is, that is sinful. Engaging in sex homosexually is a distortion. It goes back to the design. One man, one woman. So when you have man and man and woman and woman, this is another distortion. And then everything that heterosexuals do that is outside of that covenant agreement and that covenant moment is distortion. But we're just consenting adults. We're engaged. What's the big deal? It's a big deal to God. It is. And when you're living together, you're like, oh, we're just living together. And we're having sex, but we're just living together. What's the big deal? It's a big deal. It is. It's a big deal because God has laid down his intentions of what sex should be. And as you read the Joseph narrative, you get the sense from Joseph that this was, this was a big topic. This was something. I mean, everything was in his hand except this. And so sexual sins are, are not worse in God's eyes, but there is a, a depth, there is an effect, there is something of influence that sexual immorality and brokenness has upon us that drives us to deeper places in our minds and in our hearts and in our souls. There is something very heavy about sexual immorality. Why, 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 why? I've been searching for the answer. And the answer is now we're going to take a break from the, the Joseph narrative. And I want you to see something from the Apostle Paul. Now I'm in the New Testament. And if you want to know why is sexual brokenness a big deal, Paul says it this way. He says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have have from God, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This answers the why question. Why is sexual immorality uh, so damaging and deeply affecting? It's because of this topic of, notice the words, of, of giving 
and joining and becoming members with, becoming one flesh. You are giving and giving and giving at the deepest levels of physical and emotional. And when we do it outside of that context of God's design, we do it in ways that are damaging. And Paul even says, I mean, he uses the absurdity. You wouldn't go and join yourself with a prostitute, would you? Of course not. Then don't join yourself in other ways. And so Paul says it right here. The direct line of argumentation goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. You, you saw the phrase in, in, in what he says in verse 16. It's the design. It's, it's between a, a man and a woman. All right, so here's the, the summary. That when we are living and practicing what God has designed for us sexually in the context of marriage between a man and a woman, we are telling a much bigger story. We are telling the God story when we are doing it the way he designed. What is that story? It's bigger than your own personal love story between you and your spouse. It's the story of God, of how a God would sacrificially love imperfect people. That's what marriage, marriage tells that story. When a man and woman are loving imperfectly, loving each other sacrificially, and living that kind of life out, that is telling the story. Paul would say it even in the book of Ephesians, that marriage is a profound mystery. And what he means is, when you do it well, you are telling the story of the gospel. That's why it's important. And conversely, when you live your life in sexual immorality, you tell no such story. You, you tell no such story if you're living a life of sexual immorality in all of its distorted permutations. And, and even Jesus would widen that, that lane to say even things of, of lust and the things we think and added to these conversations are the distortions of pornography and all of this junk. All of it is a lie. It is a lie. And when we follow these kinds of lies, we tell no gospel story with our lives. We look exactly like the world and we tell nothing different. And why would the world want to follow that when it already has that? A few months ago, I was telling the story at a men's breakfast about my own brokenness in this area. At a very young age, I was exposed to pornography, and it put me on a bad path for a long time. Sexual distortion in horrible ways. If you want to hear more of that story, I'd love to grab a cup of coffee and tell you that. It's real. It happens. There's lots of brokenness around this topic. There's deep woundedness, I know, in this room around sexual immorality. All right, so so far we've seen Joseph in the midst of temptation. We've, we've explored why this is so important to every single one of us and Here's where I, what I want to do. What is the next step? Like, where do you go from here? Like, we've stirred a conversation. 
But where do we go from here? There's something that your heart and your mind need to hear. I'm going to make three statements, and maybe you need to hear one of them. Maybe you need to hear two of them. Maybe you need to hear three of them. But I want you to be open to hearing what the Lord might be saying to you in this moment. All right, the first one goes back to the narrative of Joseph. Let's pick up the story in verse 39, verse 11. The statement is going to be, you you must flee. Here's why. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled. He got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house. The story continues on. You can read about it in in Genesis 39. But as you can tell, things has escalated. And now there's nobody in the house. And she takes advantage of that and grabs onto him to the point where he was like, I am out of here. That cloak, I don't need that. I need to get out of here. He fled. Flee, flee, flee. It's the same word we saw that Paul in the New Testament said. He said, flee from sexual immorality. In another letter in Ephesians, he says, there must not even be a a hint of sexual immorality in your life. And so this is the next step for maybe some people in this room to hear, that you must flee. You can't play around with sexual immorality. You can't have that relationship at work where you're like really kind of emotionally tied to somebody else and it's like kind of like something you're just kind of feeding. Flee from it. Stop. Well, I have some apps on my phone and I just kind of go to them once in a while. It's, it's not hurting anybody. Nobody knows. Flee from it. You can't play around with sexual immorality. You must flee from it. We were praying this this past week on Thursday morning as a men's group. I, I said this. It might even get to the point where you take your smartphone and you throw it into the bottom of a lake. Oh, I can't do that. Yes, you can. That job that is uh, causing you to stumble, leave it. God's design is, is, is worth it. We must do dramatic things. You can't coddle sexual immorality and, and live life in ways that will honor the Lord. You must, you must flee from it. That's one thing that you might need to hear. The Lord might be speaking to you. Yeah, what do I need to flee from? What, what are the things that are the temptations and the things I'm just kind of keeping on the side? All right, what else might you need to hear? Listen to these words from King David. He's a fellow struggler of sexual immorality. It's well documented. David, Bathsheba. Listen to what these words were in Psalm 51. Maybe these are the words you need to hear in this moment. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. Your design against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I believe that one of the furthering lies of the enemy is to keep people ensnared in the guilt of sexual immorality. It's the the weight and the baggage that you keep carrying and carrying. And certainly there is lots of damage that can be done. But I want you to know that if this is, Psalm 51 is the posture of your heart and the posture realizes that you have gone to depths and you need forgiveness, uh, if you realize the posture of your heart realizes that you are, you are broken and contrite and that you are seeking to be transformed, there is good news. There's good news. The designer of of sexual purity is also the one who forgives. And in Psalm 51, a little bit later, he says, I can take that brokenness and I can forgive you to the point where you can be washed whiter than, let's say it together, snow. The blood of Jesus Christ has the ability to wash sexual immorality to the place of white and forgiveness. Maybe today is the day you need to hear these words, that you are forgiven. And when you are forgiven, you then move on to tell the story of a gospel and a God who forgives. You're not chained to that anymore. You're free. Maybe that's what you needed to hear. You must flee. You are forgiven. But then maybe there's a third thing that you need to hear. And I want you to come know that it comes from a heart of shepherding people and knowing that there are many people in this room who are victims of sexual abuse. You, something came to you that was unwarranted, and whether it was in a dating relationship or maybe as a child, something dark happened to you, and there is deep wounds and scars. I know it's, it's here. I know it is. And as a shepherd, it, it angers me, it pierces me to know that there's just that kind of pain in this room. But I want you to know that y- you are not forgotten. You're not forgotten, and I want Psalm 56, just, just hear the words. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? 
All day long they injury, injure my, my, my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife and they lurk and they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know. This I know. This I know. That God is for me. And maybe that's what you need to hear. That you're not alone. You have a, there's a God who, who knows the depths of your pain. And this metaphor is beautiful. He, the tears that you have, he, does he put them in a bottle? Does, does he not see them? He does. And so as a church, we want to recognize that that we want to walk in this conversation, that you are not alone. What do you need to hear in this conversation? We live in a broken world that is lying to us constantly. And God's word lays out what is good and pure and noble and not dirty about this topic but to be celebrated and lived. May we glorify God with our bodies, discerning what is wicked, but also following after him. I'm gonna pray for us, and I've been, I said this all week long. I, I, I've been telling people that 3,000 words of what you just heard are never going to do this topic justice. This is just the beginning of the conversation that we want to continue to have. And so I want to pray for us, and we're going to have a time of worship, but there's also going to be moments where if you want to pray with someone, they're going to be around the room, and you just want to, someone to talk to, and Maybe you want to schedule an appointment. I don't know what the Lord is going to do, but this is important. It's a very important topic. So let's go to the Lord and ask for his wisdom. Dear God, we give you thanks as we submit our lives to you. And we live in a very broken and shattered world. We ourselves carry wounds and baggage with us in these topics. But I pray for your design, uh, that it would matter to us, the ways that you have designed sexuality to be lived and to be celebrated. And so, Lord, I know that there's many in this room, and we are on a, a spectrum of those who maybe need to hear something about fleeing, some that need to be, hear something about being forgiven, and, and some who just might still bear the weight of numbness of, of what was a part of their past. And so we come to you and we need your help. We readily are asking, help, help us. We want to glorify you. And we recognize that 
ultimately our bodies are not our own. They are temples of your glory. And so may you be pleased by what we do with them. And as we even reflect in these next moments, please impress upon us the things that you want us to hear and to to wrestle with and to figure out what that next step might be. We give you thanks. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.